Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm an interviewer, journalist and broadcaster. And for the first decade of this century, I did for the Irish radio station RT Radio 1 a music series titled Under the Influence. Sadly, that title was subsequently used for a similar MTV show. So now, after revisiting the master tapes of those old interviews, I've decided to turn the best into a podcast series called The Music That Made Me. I may even add the subtitle, Made Me Want to Make Music. Either way, what follows is one of those shows, minus music, which for copyright reasons I can't include. Some of the full shows and many of my other radio programs are available on Mixcloud.com. And if you want to read any articles that arose out of these interviews, you can check out JoeJacksonInterviewer.com. Enjoy the show. Nancy Griffith, we're backstage after a sellout gig in the Royal Albert Hall, a long way from the time when you listened to the, this song, and I think it was the first that gave you a sense of music giving you wings to fly. Bob Dylan's first session. All right, playing harmonica. In the studio, playing harmonica. But you did say that that was that when you heard that from the radio, at a time when the world was dominated by rock and roll, that gave you a sense there was something else. A sense of music that could lift you elsewhere. It gave me a real sense of um, that uh, that music was carrying on in such a way that you didn't. It wasn't mandatory to do what was on the radio, and um, and certainly um, Lonnie Donegan did <laughs> not, you know, carry on what was mandatory. I mean, he took uh, Woody Guthrie's um, um, songs and just went out with him and created skiffle music, you know, and then Buddy Holly heard skiffle music and and that came straight back to West Texas. All right. And then you got rock and roll like again. Stuff like Rock Island Line, that bellies. Rock yeah, Island Rock Island, Island that was Line. Done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that point, apart from the fact that you said you heard folk music like that, you also originally obviously loved rockabilly and rock and roll. Buddy yeah. in particular. Oh, Buddy, Buddy Holly was, was it, but Carolyn Hester was also it because she was a, a voice from my own dust. All you right. know, she was, she was from West Texas and she had an incredible voice and incredible sense of rhythm and time and she was friends with Buddy and, and Buddy helped her produce all of her original all right. demos all right. All right. before she went to New York and, and, and became the folk star that she was. But, you know, it, it, it's an amazing thing that all of that music, that rock and roll and the folk evolution all happened at the same time. Okay, but originally it was rockabilly. I mean, you, you all, you've always uh, remembered how the day you were born, uh, Buddy and the band were trading in their acoustics for Stratocasters. That's you, right. The year you were born. That's right. That's, that's, like... what, that, that's what Sonny <laughs> Curtis and J.I. Allison say. They say, they say that, that July 6, 1954, they were down at the record store where they had guitars for sale in Lubbock, Texas, trading in their J45 Gibsons for 1954 Stratocasters. You know, and, and uh, hey, what can I say? Um, well, I know you kind of, you did meet Carolyn when you were eight, but how young were you when you first became aware of Buddy and the Crickets? I became aware of Buddy and the Crickets when I was about um, four, year, four or five years okay. old. Because they, they, they were on Ed Sullivan's show. And um, there were no TVs amongst our family. We were all really dirt poor uh, farmers. And... Um, there was a TV at my grandparents' house, and we all went there to watch 
Buddy Holly and the Crickets on the Ed Sullivan Show. And um, so, th so that was my first experience really with television and also my first experience to watch Buddy Holly's right hand, you know. And In what sense? In what sense? As a, the rhythm of the, the guitar? It was the rhythm of the guitar and, and um, um, J.I. Allison and Sonny Curtis, Joe B. Malden have always said, well, you know, Nan Nancy has it. You know, she's she that right she, hand rhythm. She has that right hand, um, and it's it, it's not that easy. Okay, so even that young, you were watching the musician aspect of Buddy Holly. You was bet. It? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody that cute <laughs> with a right hand moving that fast, you're gonna watch him. <laughs> you can remember what he was playing, I bet. Yeah. What was it? He was he was actually playing his J forty five. Oh no, what he was singing though. What was he singing? Was it Peggy Sue? Was it? What yeah, the, well, the, the, the first time I saw him on Ed Sullivan, yeah, it was Peggy Sue. He did Peggy Sue. So if we were to play that for you, would you be very happy, or would you choose another? Would it be a too obvious one? Oh, no, no. You know, <laughs> well, Heartbeat's one of my favorites okay, of okay. all time. But but I love Peggy Sue because J.I. Allison actually wrote it. It's his wife, as you said tonight. Yeah, it was stage. his wife. <laughs> <laughs> so should we play? Which would you, You've got the choice here, Nancy, whichever you want. Uh, if, Heart, if Heartbeat is your favorite... We can't go wrong with well, that. Well, J.I. Coat wrote that, too. Oh. So, we'll, we'll oh. just play Peggy Sue. Okay. We, we just got it. That's good. No, that, but Heartbeat, Heartbeat will be one of my favorites, too. Okay, so, uh, yeah, uh, we're ready? Nancy Griffith. Uh, that was Buddy Holly. But you've also said that um, watching the credits on who wrote those songs got you also interested in songwriters. Yeah, I, I was very curious about songwriting because whenever I bought a record beneath the song title would be in parentheses these little letters that had the name of the person that wrote the song and I can remember as a child um, with country records the name that I saw the most open often was always Harlan Howard okay you know our when I I was amazed when I bought Loretta Lynn's records that in the parentheses it actually said Loretta Lynn and she was the first uh, female artist that I could think of that actually wrote her own songs played her own rhythm guitar right. she actually wrote her own songs alright but Buddy and the Crickets you've always made a point you've brought the guys on tour you, and tonight you made a point again and in Dublin last week you made a point of saying and in our book Other Voices you point out it was not just Buddy Holly the crickets were writing these songs with him and they were an integral part of the sound. They were a band. They were a real band and they were the, the really the first real band in America. They co-wrote their songs. Um, everybody always thinks, well, Buddy Holly wrote all these songs and the crickets were just a band. And the movie that they made about that really um, pushes that to the point of... of um, Terrible, well, no, but it also I talked to one of the, to the guys, and they said they were very hurt, and their children were hurt, and their families were hurt when they went to the premiere, and they did not figure. Yeah, they, 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 the they went to see a movie, and their names were changed. Yeah, and in reality, um, Glendy Harden, uh, Joe B. Malden, J.I. Allison, Sonny Curtis, they all co-wrote the songs. Sure. With with Buddy Holly, they, they Buddy Holly didn't write them by himself. They himself, and there were very few songs that Buddy actually wrote by himself. But Sonny Curse has gone on to write, I mean, he wrote I Fought the Law sure. and the Law one. He wrote the Mary Tyler Moore theme song, Love is All Around. All right. um, you know, so, so in a sense, Sonny has been immortalized uh, on his own. But 
nobody really understands it. J.I. Allison sure. co-wrote That'll Be the Day, uh, wrote Peggy Sue, um, co-wrote many, many songs. Well, all right. Heart Heartbeat. Yeah, and I Heartbeat. I think, I think we may give you a fragment of Heartbeat. Seeing as though we've mentioned it so much, to have another fragment of Buddy Holly and the Crickets. What do you think? That'd be great. Okay. Nancy Griffiths, you once said as a young girl you wanted to be a cricket. Oh, yeah. My <laughs> ideal... You, but you, you got your dream. Yeah, my <laughs> ideal was to grow up and be a cricket. And I've been really fortunate that they, they took me to heart. And um, they consider me a cricket. And I thoroughly enjoy playing with them. And whenever I get the opportunity, I'm out there playing rhythm guitar and singing with the crickets. Can you, the first moment you actually stood on a stage with the crickets, having had that childhood ambition, I mean, what was your sense? Was it a sense of, my God, this is it? No, my, my sense was, I'm a total idiot, why am I here? <laughs> and uh, um, they, were, they were great. Um, the innocence of rock and roll will never die as long as the crickets live. All right, okay. All right, we can move on to... Uh, well, also, I just want to make a comment, because for all the people who saw the gig, yes, tonight you did... And in the Dublin concert, you very much ended the concert with a well, all right, still proving that the connection to Buddy and the Crickets is as vibrant and as vital to you as ever. Yeah. It's a high point of the, of the concert. And you, you seem like you love doing it. I do. Great joy. You even give us a jump at the end. Be careful with that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But there was another thing, and I, we may not play them, or we may, but when we were doing the book together, you told me that the, the voices of the Everly Brothers in particular were the first singers that made you want to hide under the bedclothes and listen to them late at night, that the purity of those harmony lines has also been a huge influence on your work. Well, the Everly Brothers um, can never be matched vocally. They will be um, what they are forever in rock and roll. And no matter how close anybody comes, those, those two brothers with their sibling harmonies and... Um, their closeness, and Don and Phil as songwriters can never be matched. All right. But you just think the sound of those two particular voices, and I know you've covered and you had a problem filling the third when you did yeah. their song, you know. Yeah. But when you, you, you actually broke down the structure of the song to try and find out exactly how they did that, and there's a certain way they've built their harmonies, which you say is particular to the Everly Brothers. It, it really is. I mean, when we recorded Come Right Back, um, you know, which is Sonny Curtis's song. Um, it was very, very difficult to ring that harmonic with two voices because, of course, Sonny Curtis and I are from 20 miles apart from each other, but we're not siblings. Okay. And um, so we, we can't match that sound. But uh, with a third voice, with Lee Satterfield in there, you know, it rings the tonic, you know, so... Um, but, but, but they can't, they can't be matched for what they do. We could even give a flash of the Everly Brothers, couldn't we? Oh yeah. Again, would it be Walk Right Back by them? Walk Right Back, Sonny Curtis. Okay, the, the, the thing here, which is only, the only drawback is, I'd love to actually have the music to let you hear it so that you could almost sing along with it. That's, you know, it's almost like, because we're saying almost cold yeah, here. Yeah. You know, but it's okay, that's fine, it's going all right. 
Okay, just a sense. Give me a sense of, of what it was like uh, growing up in Texas, where you were growing up. You said that part of what drew you to music, and maybe the beauty of those harmony of the Everly's and that, that you were, you were not an outgoing child, and you were drawn to like lonely landscapes and literature, Tennessee, Eudora Welty, and Larry McMurty. So, so you saw, and your father made you realize that songs are very much narrative literature too. So you saw the whole thing was a cultural influence that kind of blended together to influence Nancy Griffith. I think everything came together. Um, my life came together really on the folk side in hearing writers like Guy Clark and Towns Van Zandt and um, Towns Van Zandt's song Tecumseh Valley about Caroline. My middle name is Caroline. You hear it when you're 14 years old and you realize that Towns Van Zandt understands that there's a Caroline in the middle of every woman. Um, Which is what? A person who's lonely? person who's misplaced? It's an extraordinary um, person trying to get out of where okay. they are. Okay, who feels oppressed emotionally or spiritually yeah. or some sense. Which brings us back to Carolyn Hester as in I'll fly away. Yeah. <laughs> it's that kind of sense of the spirit flying which has been central to even some of your own lyrics. You use that image of, of being able to fly being or able just to beginning be to fly. And Carolyn Hester was a definitive <clears throat> of being able to get up and fly away. But what was it about, you said to me about Carolyn that uh, unlike Joan Baez, she had rhythm. You yeah. know, that so it kind of tapped in. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't mean to say anything that, 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 that they could perceive as anything bad against Joan Baez, but Carolyn did have a real good sense of rhythm. But as you say, she worked with Buddy Holly. Yeah, I she mean, did. So she had that same stuff in, the, in her soul, and the soil of where she was coming from. Yeah, she's a real rockabilly. Yeah. And uh, she talked her parents into letting her um, use her college funds to move to New York to study opera. Okay. And not much opera was done, was it? No, but, right. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Carolyn, Carolyn is a brilliant uh, singer, and she does have a great sense of rhythm. And, and Joan has a great sense of place and a great sense of uh, lyric. But no rhythm. <laughs> okay, no, 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 she's a very static singer. Yeah. But um, you did say that uh, Carolyn has soul. So would you pick a song by Carolyn, apart from I'll Fly Away, that we could play, which would make people listen out for the purity of that soul? I've always loved the song that Carolyn wrote about King Edward and Wallace Simpson. And um, um, I don't know if you have it on um, What's it called? Record. Um, Kingdom for a Kiss. Okay. It's called Kingdom okay. for a Kiss. Okay. Okay, so if we don't find that track by Carolyn Hester, you apparently like her version of Summertime. Summertime. Oh, that's, that's that plan. Go on. You go on. You apparently summertime. like her version of Summertime. Summertime by Carolyn Hester can't be replaced. Okay. What's so great about it? Because um, there are so many versions of that song. It's really very simply cut with a guitar and a vocal. And... Not to mention the fact that she jumps, jumps an octave vocally at the end and walks it down. And, and I think that um, Gershwin would be pleased. Summertime. Okay, there we had Carolyn Hester, who you met when you were eight years old. And that was a pretty uh, you, a tearful experience, actually, wasn't it? It was very tearful <laughs> when I met Carolyn Hester because um, I was in line at the show that she had done at the Austin Municipal Auditorium and um, I had eaten cunt candy and I had it all over me and my father kept coming up to me and saying now 
You're waiting in line to get an autograph. When you get up there, do not touch Miss Hester because you're going to get it all over. So by the time that I got up to meet Carolyn, um, I did have cotton candy all over me. And, um, and my dad was looking at me and I started crying. And Carolyn thought it was just the emotion of meeting her, which it was, but it was the emotion that she reached out for my hand. I couldn't touch her. And, um, and she handed me a, a, a handkerchief that she had, you know, and I was so amazed. And I, did, I just said, thank you very much, Miss Hester, for your, you know, your music, and may I get an autograph? And she, she wrote an autograph to me, and she always remembered. She always remembered me because I was crying, you know, and, and I was so afraid to touch her. And it was only because I had cotton candy on me and my father had threatened me to, to the ends of my life if, if I got cotton candy on Carol Hester. <laughs> but I think you repaid her in many ways. I mean, uh, by, by, by bringing her back and kick-starting her career again uh, with the other we, voices albums. It, it, it began a friendship that has never ended. All right, and uh, yeah, you know, and those albums did help restart her career. I, I, I hope that I hope they did. Yeah, no, she's yeah. had album releases since that time. Okay, so Odetta, we were moving on to Odetta was the third party, the voice of God. You once called her. You said like she, even talking to her, and it is. I've talked to her. Yeah, she you, is. You just go still and silent when she says your name. Odetta is. You don't mess with Mother Nature. <laughs> um, she is to me. I mean, you know, if if God had a voice that we we could actually listen to on a daily basis. It would be the voice of Odetta. Um, you know, it's, a, it, it's not just that all of us know the songs. It's not just that we know exactly how beautiful a person she is physically. When we see her, it's the voice. All right, okay. And, and there's something about it that just reaches into you and grabs your heart and um, she, she's an extraordinary human being, has meant uh, so much in America to the civil rights movement and so much to me as a human being because she, she's been so supportive of me since my teenage years and, and you can't replace that. Pick something that is really important to you, that, a song that still chills you and you still feel that is the voice of God. Kumbaya is her, you know, that was her hit. Okay, her version of it. Yeah, no, that'll be good because that's going to lead into my next question. Okay, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay, Nancy Griffith, there we had Odetta, and you said when she, you said about her recording of Weem Away that it very much captures the, the the sense of time, place, and the spirit of a people. And you you basically do feel that's what the best song should do, particularly those recorded by Odetta, capture all those resonances. Well, Odetta was very adamant when we recorded Weem Away in that we record the spirit of South Africa in 1948 when Pete Seeger found the song and the waiters singing these songs in the restaurants and no one really knowing what they were talking about. And uh, Odetta, Pete Seeger kind of sent Odetta as his ambassador down to the recording session to make sure that we remembered um, why he brought the song back to America. All right. So that Americans would know what was going on in South Africa at the time. All Apartheid right. had just begun, and the South African waiters were singing Weem Away, and it was a song that said, King Shaka is only sleeping 
and the people will awake again. All right. And they have now. They have indeed. But you, you've also said that kind of people like Odetta and Guthrie uh, define the American psyche in the same way that you believe uh, Henry Ford did. You know, that they had that influence on popular culture or social, socialism, social perspective on life uh, mm -hmm. in a broad sense. I believe that, that music, in the same sense that Pete Peterson, who was an American flyer in the Vietnam War, shot down during the Vietnam War over Hanoi and held in POW camp in the Hanoi prison, the Hanoi Hilton for seven years, I believe, as he believed, they weren't allowed to sing in there because music is a worldwide form of communication. So they were not allowed to sing in that prison. So singing something of Pete Seeger's for him at his embassy in Hanoi, he came to me and said, we were never allowed to sing. But yet, I woke up every morning of my life, whether I liked that song or not, singing If I Had a Hammer. Right. And that's what I had chosen to sing at the embassy in Hanoi. This is when you sang very recently. Yes. Right, years afterwards. Yeah. And he told you that that's what had kept their spirits alive, singing that the, the, particular song. In their heads. They right. sang it in their heads. So music is a form of communication. It's a form of love. And certainly with that song, with, with, with If I Had a Hammer, that is a form of love. All right. But didn't you also get that from your daddy and your mom? Wasn't that very central to your own life? Your father, as I said, passed on this belief that music is something that you pass on, like Seeker says, and your mother loved jazz. So it's very much what you've been breathing in since you were the... It could have been written by Gershwin or is of that era. Yeah. You know what I mean? You really feel it. And it's lovely stuff. What I would like to lead up to is, if you want me to play that... We're almost through just need about five to seven minutes. That's six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. Six will do us. <laughs> okay. Okay, Nancy Griffith, we were talking about uh, this element of pass it on, which is something your father did kind of, uh, it was part of your, your upbringing from your dad. But also your mother loved jazz. So you had this kind of mix of influences at a musical level, social level, in terms of music from the very outset. I had incredible... Um childhood of mixtures of music with my dad with his weavers albums and the almanac singers my mother with count basie brubeck frank sinatra um it, you know it was just sort of a household that didn't belong together to begin with right, okay. but it, it you mean works. musically yeah musically <laughs> okay. i mean my mother's idea of a folk song is scotch and soda and that's only because that's what she drinks so uh you know <laughs> but she was a great fan of, she's a great fan of the chieftains and i must say that that's where i first heard the chieftains was from my mother okay all so. right okay but this jazz influence this kind of uh you you do a song on your new album which has all the, and when you introduce it in concert, you say, Frank Christian wrote this, it's of another era, it could have been a Gershwin song. And I was watching tonight, and, and you, you could see it, that the London Symphony Orchestra love playing the bluesy, jazzy bass in a particular song. They, they love playing Drops from the Faucet of Frank Christian's because he does write of a really melodic, musical era, a time of Gershwin a time of Frank Sinatra.
a time of Count Basie and Nelson Riddle and, and really putting the music in there. And my stepfather was a, was a great player. He, he, you know, he played with Woody Herman. Um, he knew and was great friends with Hoagie Carmichael. And, and so all of that combined, I'd say drops from the faucet, right now for me, when we do a symphony show, that's the favorite. And it's the favorite for the symphony too because it allows them to just lay back and play jazz, play American jazz and have fun. You don't lay back, you go for it, oh, don't you? I love <laughs> sing singing it. Sing it out, sing out. <laughs> I love singing it, I love singing it. It's a, it's a New Year's Eve sometime in the past and getting stood up, not only that. Oh, you don't like that part though? No, that part, no, I love that part. <laughs> you know, it's part of the song. And if you, you know, if you can't love getting stood up on a New Year's Eve, then you can't love being Nancy Griffith. Into song. Okay, uh, and now I just want to work our way into um, It's a Hard Life, okay? Yes. Uh, Nancy Griffith, uh, we talked about, we, we, I talked earlier about the, you, you talking about the influence that um, um, certain composers have on the American psyche, but when we were working on the book together you also said you loved the line Seamus Heaney uses of, all art or song putting a tongue to people's silence. That's right. Isn't that how you see what you perform, what you sing, what you present to people, in essence? And it's a hard life wherever you go. I feel like that I am putting words and music to something not been spoken, which is not understanding conflict and certainly not understanding bigotry or racism. And my grandmother adored It's a Hard Life Wherever You Go. It was her favorite song that I had ever written and she said it wasn't pretty um, and maybe it wouldn't be remembered um, but it has been the most recorded song of mine um, and certainly it isn't pretty but it has no opinion the only opinion that it has is that we must stop teaching our children hatred and passing on our biases because if we don't it just continues the cycle and they will in turn have a hard life themselves because they're handicapped with that hatred. And John McSherry, who is from Belfast and an extraordinary pipe player uh, from the island of which you come, uh, came in when we recorded the song with the London Symphony. And John came to me and said, Nancy, I don't read music. And I said, oh, well, John, this is where, this is what it says. We sat down with the sheet music, and I said, this is what it says. And when I sang it all the way through for him. He sat down with the London Symphony. Andrew Jackman pointed the finger at John McSherry, and boom! This is the conductor. The most emotional, yeah, the most emotional version of It's a Hard Life, wherever you go, that's ever been performed anywhere, any time, of any day. The whole symphony was in tears. I was in tears by the time I even started playing, just from what he played on the pipes. And that's from a man who can read not one note of music, 
but but played exactly on the pipes what I had sung to him. Before I lead into playing that, or we fade out the, the show with that, give me the genesis of the song. Was it a drive in a car and Seamus? Was it as literal as you describe in the opening verse? Seamus is very real, and he did drive us around Northern Ireland. He did take us to Falls Road, and he's still my friend. Okay, this was around what year? Five years ago? This No, this was in 1988. Oh, 88, okay. All right, okay. So this is at the height of the Troubles and the, the description of the barbed wire and the children uh, locked behind that barbed wire yes. is exactly as you saw it and felt it. Yes. And the parallel with Chicago, did that happen soon afterwards? or The parallel with Chicago is never-ending. Okay. And that's been going on forever, and Chicago remains a segregated city. And... Um, one day it will end. Okay. Would you, if, if I hadn't been leading you towards playing this song to end, and I wanted you to choose an Nancy Griffith song that would say to me, this is as pure as you're going to hear in an Nancy Griffith song, what would you choose from your entire body of work? I would still choose It's a Hard Life Wherever You Go. I think Pat Kenny is right when he said to me, would you please play It's a Hard Life Wherever You Go on my radio show because I think that young adults considering having children should have to eat this song for breakfast every day. I hate giving another, <laughs> another my peer a plug, but hey, how can we better? That is an ending. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for giving Pat a plug. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. More can be heard, as I said, at Joe Jackson Interviewer dot com.